You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Uptown, there's this dude who's bad. And he ain't just fly, he's super fly. Yeah, super fly. When it comes to women, they come to him. He's got it all. The pad, the money, the ride. But it's still not enough. I'm gonna run a number. I'm getting out the million in cash. This is a chance, and I want to take it now. Before I have to kill somebody. Before somebody ices me. He wants a big score. A million in cash. Yeah, the big one. He's got a plan to stick it to the man. He's super hood, super high, super dude, super fly. Super fly. A six-year production from Warner Brothers. Rated R. Under 17, not admitted without a parent. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Hey, uh, anyone seen Freddy? Ooh, yeah. Also back in the booth this week is Mr. Chris Stashu. If I only had a million dollars, I could get out of this life. This week, we are going to hear three white guys talk about one of the pillars of the black exploitation pantheon, Superfly. Directed by Gordon Parks Jr., the film stars Ron O'Neill as Priest, a drug dealer who's looking to get out of the game, baby. This film was written by Philip Fenty, who produced That's the Way of the World and directed The Baron, which I know we will talk about on the Projection Booth one of these days. It was produced by Sig Shore, who directed That's the Way of the World and was behind Superfly TNT and The Return of Superfly, which we will also discuss. This film was derided for its glorification of drug use and lauded for its soundtrack by Curtis Mayfield. Of course, we're going to be getting into spoilers big time for all things Superfly, so please be warned. Rob, when was the first time you saw Superfly, and what did you think, sir? Oh, man. I mean, it's one of those that has been so around me, I can't even tell you. I mean, it's it's a film that's part of the, when you get a little bit of a knowledge of this era of film, you end up seeing it like probably in a double feature of on VHS at the time with Shaft and Dolomite and, you know, uh, Cotton Comes to Harlem and all the other um, great great films from that era. So it's probably high school, late teens, early 20s. And for me, it has always been a movie that the stuff that it birthed, the things that I'm not talking about the sequels or the remake, the stuff that it birthed within the era, the influence it had within the era. Um, this is a much more serious film uh, with some great points to be made that just six months or a year or two years later, once this became an established genre in a really heavy way, um, got really kind of cartoony. It's not to say I don't like the, the, the cartoony stuff. Uh, I mean, it has its merits. It's kind of like looking at, I guess, maybe the equivalent would be like spaghetti westerns or something. But this one really is trying to make some larger points, and especially with a soundtrack like Curtis Mayfield. I mean, you really can't go wrong. So glad to be talking about it. How about you, Chris? Last year on the Culture Cast, we did Black Exploitation, and Mike, you did not get a chance to throw your hat into the ring to help program that month. I turned the reins over to a good friend of ours, other Mike, Mike Wallace, and 
This was not on that list. However, it probably should have been because I feel like it has a lot more to say about the black exploitation genre than, oh, I don't know, Petey Wheatstraw, the devil's son-in-law does, uh, which I saw before this movie, which, speaking of those cartoony black exploitation films, uh, that movie's really not great. This movie, on the other hand, it, it's better. It has its moments. It's definitely, uh, it's an, I, I understand the importance of this film. And, uh, yeah, the, the first time I saw it was, was for this. So I'm coming at this from a very different angle than, than Rob and yourself are. So it's a very interesting film. The, the diminishing returns of the later sequels is very apparent, unfortunately, but the original film is, is pretty good. I backed my way into this. I didn't start with Petey Wheatstraw, The Devil's Son-in-Law, but I was much more of a, if I hadn't seen Black Shampoo first, that was one of my early ones, which was, what, 76, and then worked uh, my way back into the Mac and a few other things, finally saw Shaft, and then I saw Superfly. And Superfly and Shaft, to me, are like the two biggest ones as far as like what really put black exploitation on the map. And I suppose the third one would be Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song. And I'm sure there are other films that are just as important, just as groundbreaking. But for me, those are kind of like this triumvirate of these really landmark films and each of them bringing different aspects of black culture to uh, both black America and white America through the use of cinema. And this one was not as raw as Sweet Sweetback, but is definitely not a really super polished film. But the performances and the music are absolutely phenomenal. I mean, Ron O'Neill is terrific in this movie. And I like that it has this kind of cinema verite feel a lot of times. This feels like a documentary more than it does a narrative at times. Though, to your point, Rob, there are a lot of things in this film that we'll see repeated again and again and again to the point where when you come to Superfly, if you've seen a lot of black exploitation films or just a lot of movies from the 1970s, you are going to be seeing a bunch of stuff that you've seen before, and so it might not necessarily feel as fresh. Even to start with it, I mean, that open, and this was made a year after by the son of the guy who made the first film, that opening just reminds me of Shaft, which is funny because if there's a visual through line, Shaft is a bit more polished, but it still has a bit of that kind of verite quality, which, you know, I, I guess maybe we have to set up that Gordon Parks Jr. and Gordon Parks Sr. are not the same guys. So, <laughs> Which I've made that mistake before, and I apologize for doing that. Gordon Parks Sr. went on to have a huge career, um, and even before he made uh, Shaft and, and other films that he did, uh, he was a photographer. So he had, you know, as, as an artist, going out and sort of collecting everyday life. Part of the reason why we make it confused is that people go, oh, Gordon Park Sr., his career, you know, he must have uh, given up making filmmaking at some point. No, actually, sadly, a few years after he made this movie, he died tragically. A young man, he wasn't that old. I think he was in his maybe early 30s. 
so his career was kind of sh- cut short. So I think uh, if you get confused and go, oh, well, it's you know the same guy who did the Shaft, did uh, Superfly. No, uh, two different guys. But that opening of that sort of look down on the street and and people, you know, sort of following this this guy on the street, which is what I always remember from the opening of Shaft <laughs> and the music and having a solid person who can do music like that. I mean, obviously Isaac Hayes and then on uh, Shaft. And then when you come a year later to Superfly, you have Curtis Mayfield. It, it really puts you in that space where it's almost like he is tying a connection back to his father. And there is some visual sense, I think, between the two films. Although the storylines are a bit different and what they're discussing is a bit different, although it is a different view of, of black urban America of the period. It's an interesting way to start the film with that overhead shot and with these two characters that will basically not add anything to the film. Like we are just seeing these two, I guess they're junkies and they're desperate for a fix or for money to get a fix. And then we cut from them over to Priest, who's played by Ron O'Neill, and he's in bed with this white woman, and he's snorting coke from this Ankh. You know, we've talked before about Ankh and the symbolism of eternal life and all this, and then there's a lot of uh, Egyptian symbols uh, around and and also African art. Uh, I know that Egypt is in Africa, but more traditional African art uh, in this apartment that they're at, and which will kind of go throughout a lot of the film. If you look in the background, you'll see that kind of uh, uh, symbolism throughout the entire movie. Our introduction to him and who he is and what his world is like at this particular moment, and then the two paths eventually converge after the opening credits. It's like, why did we see this guy? Why did we see these two other guys? And then eventually we'll have that meeting of, of them and they kind of pick on the wrong guy and we so we immediately get to see priest in action and what a tough guy that he is and so again it's more introduction of his character and exactly who this dude is knowing now that he can take care of himself so it's a nice way for us to build up this character through just a few scenes and i think that that opening is great because what it does is it it doesn't start on him it starts on the world in which he's in that becomes the big motivator the big theme, the big message throughout the film is that he he understands that this world is very confining. It's not one that if he was given more choices that he possibly would have chosen. So he feels a bit trapped by it. And the fact that this opening sets that up and really gives us the idea of both the highs and lows, obviously the highs being and very risque for 1972 um, to have have a white girlfriend and all of this stuff, or at least a white woman on the side, uh, as, as we see later, to really build that in, to go, this is the world in, in which this character exists. And, um, it, you know, we're, we're following him and we're going through it in that way with him throughout the film. But, I mean, he really wants us to understand uh, the world outside, that this is just... You know, and it's backed up by the soundtrack and everything else. In this world that he's in, it's not the clean world. What's happening in the clean world? This is not the clean world that this guy is in. I mean, the streets that we are introduced to, this is Harlem in the early 1970s. We are really in this pattern of urban decay. We're going to get a lot of sets that, well, sets, I think almost everything was shot 
on the street or in a real location. So you get to see the real graffiti, the way that the buildings are falling down, the one shot of the two buildings on either side of this basically a pile of rubble, you know, just like, okay, this is the world that this guy is living in. And it really adds to that sense of desperation. You know, some people say like, oh, well, Superfly glamorized a lot of things. And it's like, well, it might have possibly glamorized drug use, or at least it kind of showed a lot of cocaine usage. But the world that he's in is not glamorous. You know, like his car is pretty bitchin', but the world that he's living in, not really something that you want to strive for. I kind of take umbrage with that the, when I was reading and listening to to stuff about the film that there's this idea that the film glorifies drug use. I, I mean, I guess, but at the same time, just because we're talking about a character who's a drug dealer, that, that doesn't necessarily mean we're glorifying it. I mean, he knows what he's doing is wrong. That's why he's trying to get out. That's why he wants to be done. That's the whole motivation in this film, like you guys have been talking about, is that he wants more than just being a drug dealer forever. He wants to get away. He wants to get out of the life. And it's a little weird to me that this idea of deriding the film for glorifying drug use, it seems a little tone deaf to go after the movie for it being a glorification of drug use and drug users and drug dealers. When you look at films that deal with underworld characters in this way, I think maybe there is a certain level of people who, when they look at a story like this, goes, well, that may be appealing to some people. They may look at that and go, oh, that looks really great. That would be a really great life to have. Or the thing is, is that you really can't sort of show the the low without really showing the highs. And, and I mean that in both ways, both the money and then, and the expensive things that you can have, but also just the drug use. I mean, they're, they're involved in this. I mean, I was kind of reminded of this film, as, as we'll discuss a little bit, I think sort of sets a pattern or, or, or maybe a stereotype for a type of film that is consistent with maybe things like, Scarface, which comes out nine years later, or Godfather, or Goodfellas, or things like that, where you're brought into this underworld, and you know they're not going to lie to you in that way. They're going to go, yeah, this this can be very exciting, and it can be very freeing because you're outside of the norms of society. But at the same time, there's also a price to be paid for that. The price to be paid is you are constantly in fear of being beaten up by the cops, beaten up by junkies murdered. I find it hard to sympathize with people deriding the film for that when talking about an interesting character who has, who's fallible, who is human. Not every movie needs to be, let's examine the upstanding life of some white bread suburban character. Uh, it's it's just weird to me, I guess, especially when we're talking about black exploitation. Jesus Christ. Like, it's, that's the genre. <laughs> like, it's, it's just weird. That was one of the weird things that I kept reading and kept coming up. And I was like, I don't understand why people are getting so bent out of shape. Superfly is like the, you know, that seems to be the one that everybody focuses on for elevating and, and glorifying drug use. At the same time, one could look at the film and, and, and Mike probably remembers this, um, as well. Maybe even much more than I do because he's, you know, a few years older than me was when things like Goodfellas came out, there was a lot of discussion from the Italian-American community who goes, you know, yeah, like, these films are they're good, but at the same time, it's, you know, not everyone who's Italian's in the, in the mafia. 
So there's this question of stereotyping and sort of if, if the media perception to the people who live out in the middle of the hinterlands of, of the country never run into anyone who's from this community, that's the only vision that they have is that. You mean the kind of people that like egg noodles with ketchup on them? Right. So it becomes um, a, a question of can you have this conversation in, in a very real way about these topics, but at the same time, are you also doing a disservice to that community at the same time by bringing up some of these things to people who may not be hip enough to understand that, no, there's doctors and lawyers and people doing all kinds of things. It's They're not all drug dealers or they're not all mafioso hitmen. We see moments where we see the people who are taking the drugs and that's the thing that that i think we tend to forget when it comes to a movie about a drug dealer which seems odd to say that there are people buying drugs people using drugs and people becoming desperate for drugs and seeing the actual real world consequences we don't necessarily see all of the real world consequences we get the montage later on which we'll definitely talk about where we see what kind of people are buying drugs from priests or at least a, a handful of them so it's like okay that's all kind of like happy and good and stuff but then we also see the consequences of fat freddy who isn't getting priest's money and priest is like you know if you do not give me my money i will take your wife and i will turn her out onto whore's row and i'll get my money that way okay yeah there's some real world stuff going on here and it's almost like i agree with you chris as far as this being such a lightning rod of controversy might not be the thing that I would think of. But then at the same time, I'm like, okay, well, he is kind of a leech on the community, but this is one of his only ways that he can make money, or at least that's what he thinks. And at least he's trying to get out of it. He realizes that this is not a sustainable life. You know, there's only the one older drug dealer scatter that he can look at as an example, as far as how he kind of turned his life around and how he got out of the, li the life. But yeah, he wants something different for himself. And not all drug dealers get to be scatter's age because most of them either burn out or die. The Fat Freddy character, I am so happy to see Charles McGregor in this film. Charles McGregor? Yes. Oh my God. When I saw him come on screen, I was like, oh, is, is the world rising? I mean, that's the only other thing I've seen him in is Blazing Saddles. He is fantastic. And I mentioned films like That's the Way of the World and The Baron. And those are two other movies that he shows up in. He's also been in stuff like uh, Cross 110th Street and Take a Hard Ride and Three the Hard Way. So more of uh, Gordon Parks Jr.'s work and more of uh, Sig Shore's work, etc. But yeah, he is fantastic. But yeah, that is uh, the uh, Blazing Saddles is the movie where uh, he gets the most action and where he gets to live through the entire film and doesn't get uh, murdered or humiliated, tortured. Or run out in traffic. Yeah, exactly. That was the way I interpreted it, at least. I interpreted it as him running out in traffic and dying by accident. After he drops a dime on Priest, though, man. You know, snitches get stitches. That's <laughs> clearly what happened in the movie and in, in, in both iterations of the film. This movie is very rough around the edges, though. You know, I said that it's a low-budget film that... There are moments where there are some moments where it's really kind of hard to see things. I mean, James Signorelli is a great DP, but there are still moments where it's just like, okay, 
this is kind of tough to see what's happening here. There are some weird cuts every once in a while. I mean, we've got these great music beds with, uh, uh, Curtis Mayfield in here, but every once in a while there'll be like a cut and all of a sudden the music will cut off or start. And I'm just like, Whoa, what's going on? But to me, that kind of adds to the charm of the movie. It's not as rough as something like say a Dolomite, but it does kind of speak to me as a more like a cinema verite kind of thing. Just the way that they have these cuts. They're not really caring about gloss. I think that Dolomite is technically bad. It was done within a budget and within a technical ability at the time. He has a boom mic. I mean, boom mic's a character in Dolomite. But here, it's a matter of, well, we don't have a budget, so what can we do within that to to work within it? And I don't get the feeling that they're inept. I don't get the feeling that the crew doesn't know what they're doing. I do agree with you sometimes. There are some very deep shadows. Like, I'm thinking of this one part where they meet at this bar, and I think they're too deep. There's two or three people sitting on a, on a, uh, in a booth, and there's some really heavy shadows on the other people, and it's kind of hard, like, they kind of disappear <laughs> at points. So there's things like that, but I don't necessarily see it as, um, they didn't know what they were doing. I, it's just, we only got, what, 300000 or something? I mean, I don't know what they made this thing for. It wasn't a lot. Right. And I was hearing stories about two dentists that were ponying up twenty five grand a piece, and then Gordon Park Sr. throwing in some money. Yeah, it doesn't sound like there was that much stuff going on with this movie, and it was tough for it to get made. I mean, this was on that bleeding edge of exploitation. This is before it has proven to be a viable economic force. You know, so it was difficult for something like this to get bankrolled and then stuff like the nudity that's happening in here the sex scene that's happening in here there are some kind of risque things that are going on i'm not just talking about you know drug use uh, which is also not necessarily smiled upon by anybody um i don't think that this uh if this got a, a rating it was it probably should have been rated X at the time, but I don't know if it was rated X by an all-white jury. And then even some of the things like, you know, the miscegenation, it was so controversial to have the opening with Priest in bed with a white woman. And I don't know if it's the same white woman later on, if he's got multiple women, but I wouldn't be surprised. It's kind of the thing. I mean, we just talked about that last week on Trouble Man, and just that having our main characters sleep around with a lot of women is also kind of a sign of status i assumed it was the same woman but i also taking cues from the 2018 remake because he has a a black girlfriend and a white girlfriend in that movie i can't see this film not getting an x rating because the sex scene in the middle of the movie in the bathtub was pretty graphic for what i would assume would be just like a normal film which i'm not complaining about but yeah, I mean this this like you said Mike this is really pushing the pushing it for what was out at the time. When was Deep Throat out, Rod? This was still a few years shy of that. Well, it was around this time. It was 72, 73. So, so I mean we are riding that edge. And it also wouldn't have been that out of place for this movie to play some of those area theaters around the same area. So I'm sure when they put this together and eventually Warner brothers did pick it up, but the plan probably was put it in these grindhouses, you know, next to the porno theaters where they show all the, all the other exploitation films. So that's probably the only plan they had for it when they first started doing it. They would have sat well on the shelf, I guess, next to it. 
The scene that you were talking about where people are kind of disappearing, was that Scatter's Club where Curtis Mayfield's playing? No, this was the other one. I, uh, the, the scene where you were talking about where he meets Freddie and says, look, you know, she's got to, you got to give me the money or she's going out on the street where he's meeting with them. And it seemed like there was some really heavy shadows in there. It was a little confusing at times that Freddie is one of his dealers and Eddie is his partner. I might have named those characters a little bit different. Eddie is played by Carl Lee, who I noted was also in the cool, the cool world, and Pound, just like one of our friends, Antonio Fargus. Very nice. And there's that awesome scene where Eddie is talking to Priest about what he wants and his goals and everything, and the way that he turns and breaks the fourth wall and is talking to, to us, or I guess it might be considered a POV shot uh, from Priest's POV, but he's talking directly to us as the audience or as Priest and giving us, like, Eddie's view of the world, which I really appreciated that moment. I mean, ultimately, he in some ways is playing the audience character, where he has to ask the questions for us in terms of, well, why do you want to give this up? Like, I wouldn't want to give this up. Where are you going to go if you're not doing this? And it looks so easy and there's so much good stuff and you've got this car and, you know, the fly car, the girls, the jewels. Tell me that's real. It's got to be real. An eight-track player and, and color TV in every room. That's the American dream. And you have to also admit that, you know, being from this town that we are, that custom car you know, is something too. Well, what I heard is that Priest wants to give it all up to go to Europe to get into an African adventure that is... Hey. <laughs> hey. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. Spoilers. Whoa now. Whoa now, folks. <laughs> oh, man. That's what I was told. That's what he should have turned to the fourth wall and been like, I want to go on an African adventure. Priest's big plan is to buy... 30 keys and sell them in three months. And he's going to pay 300 K for the cocaine and, and sell it for a million dollars. And basically the rest of this movie is the complications and all of the things that are standing in his way to stop his plan. And not only is he going to get some static from scatter who is played by Julius Harris, who again, we talked about last week in the trouble man episode, Julius Harris and this one has hair. This is the first time I think I've ever seen Julius Harris with hair. Uh, usually he's got the nice shaved head, but uh, he's running his restaurant and he's going to give Priest a little bit of trouble with uh, trying to get his hands on all this cocaine. And then Eddie eventually is going to turn on Priest. Also, Priest is going to get in trouble with the cops. That scene is very interesting where we learn that the cops are in on this whole thing. And then he's also going to have troubles with Freddy. So Eddie and Freddy are going to give him a little bit of problems. So everything is set up against him, which is probably how the way of the world, I guess, is how it is, is that everything is going to turn against this guy and make this the most difficult thing in his life to try to get out of the game. The only person that's on his side is his girlfriend, who he has that great tub sex scene with that we talked about a little bit. And she's the only one that really stands beside him because eventually everybody else is on his shit list. And isn't Julius Harris great as Scatter? Again, I'm not as movie savvy in some respects in regards to black exploitation as y'all are. But I mean, obviously the, the film I know him from more than anything else is uh, the James Bond facsimile of a black exploitation film, uh, live and let die where he plays Teehee. 
and giving him more to do than just look menacing with shades on is great. And it really shows that live and let die, uh, really missed the boat as it were in regards to what they should and shouldn't have done with Julius Harris. They missed a lot of opportunities with that. And whenever I think of live and let die, I just think about James Bond running across those alligators or Yafit Koto turning into a balloon and exploding with some really great special effects that if you've never seen it, you should go see it because it is just the drizzling shits. But Julius Harris in this film is great. And that's, Again, when he came into that scene, I was like, oh, okay. His character is, you know, we, we've talked, you talked a little bit, Mike, about kind of like all the obstacles and kind of like the interworking mechanisms that are stopping Priest from getting out. And Scatter is like the odd man out in a way because he wants him to get out, but he doesn't want to do what it takes to help him get out, which I found a little interesting. Yeah, it's like Priest is busting his balls for this stuff and playing on his feelings. You know, you're my man, my main man, and all this stuff. And it's like, well, it seems like Scatter's out of the game, and here you are basically badgering him to get back in the game just so you can get out. And it's just like, well, I mean, really, Priest isn't that much of a hero at the end of the day because he is doing some bad things, including kind of getting Scatter killed by wanting to get out of the game he has to sacrifice scatter in order to make his way out i don't think it's a maybe i mean he completely does sacrifice him to the cops i think it also becomes a question of the morality of where you are so if you feel and as put through the you know sort of the philosophical underpinning of the film that that the situation that you're in forces you to act in ways that normally you wouldn't and that is acceptable given that situation uh, because of the – I guess you could call it the amorality or the immorality of of the, the world that's set up. The question then becomes can you judge that person for doing that given the framework in which they're forced to deal in? I want to talk about the photo montage that I mentioned earlier, which when that scene comes up, that is – it's like a music video gets dropped into this movie, and I just absolutely love it. I mean, you can just chop out this sequence and throw it on YouTube or MTV or whatever, and it just it plays so well. And I love the use of the photographs. I love the use of the multi-planed screen. You know, sometimes it's three screens, sometimes it's six, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. And it just works so well. And I mentioned before, I think all three of us have mentioned Curtis Mayfield's music, and it really lets Curtis Mayfield take charge. And even when he his music might not be, you know, it shouldn't necessarily be at the forefront. His music is always at the forefront. His music is so powerful, so strong, and his lyrics are so great. And he's got that great, like, falsetto delivery thing that he's doing. And I, I just love every piece of music that's in here. And I love the way that Curtis Mayfield's almost like this Greek chorus commenting on things that are happening in the film. Sometimes, saying good things about them and sometimes bringing up, you know, very valid points against what's happening in the movie. And it's like this, it's, I, I know it's cliche for me to say it, but it's really its own character. This music really 
is this whole other level to this movie. I think without Curtis Mayfield's music, this movie would it would be maybe 40% of what it is, and Curtis Mayfield just takes it all the way up to 100. This thing is interesting, too, because remember, uh, if someone were to do something like this today and put it into a film, you'd be like, oh, we have 40 years of music videos. 1972, I mean, there had been like promotional films for songs for bands, but there was no real outlet for anyone to kind of experiment with that way in order to create sort of a music video concept. And that's what really works here uh, in that way. And uh, what made me kind of uh, laugh is every time I see sort of multiple screens, for some reason, I think the Palma. So I, even though this is before he was who he was. I had never seen this film before, but I had heard the music. Uh, I had heard Pusher Man and Superfly. Obviously, if I'm taking one of the two songs out of the film that I would listen to on a kind of regular basis would probably have to be Pusher Man. Uh, I, I, I don't know. There's just something about that song that I really, really like. And I think it's a really good song, but Superfly is great as well, but it has a really interesting way of like interplaying with the story and commenting on what's going on, but not doing it, not doing it too heavy handedly either. It's like, it's still like, a really great beat and a good song to listen to outside of the context of the film. But when you pair it with the film, it has a little bit more of kind of an oomph to it. This whole soundtrack is something that you can listen to without ever having seen the movie. And these songs do play really well. And the other films that use these songs, it does a a really good job of of doing that. You know, like uh, when, the music comes up in Superfly 2018. It's just like, it's, it almost cheapens the song because you're like, oh, wow, this is a fantastic song. What's it doing in this shitty movie? But, you know, we'll get there, right? I guess we'll get there. We will. Believe me. I've got lots of notes and lots of things to say. Spoilers. Movie's not that bad. I was very surprised that when Fat Freddy ends up getting the money for priest, he goes and he robs this Italian guy. And I thought for sure that the robbery was going to then put priest and Freddie in bad with the mob. And I thought that was going to be a whole other subplot to this. So I was kind of glad when that didn't happen, but I, and it's kind of a sad thing that I think that any Italian character in a black exploitation film is going to be a mobster. So I think that's a, something about me and maybe something about other black exploitation films. Like I think of the mobsters in Black Belt Jones who, you know, speak with that kind of, uh, it's a me, Mario kind of an accent. So uh, shame on me for thinking that this guy is a mobster. I would love to see mobsters in movies who talk like Mario. What I'm glad about in regards to the characters in this film, the mafia characters, I'm glad that there was not another subplot of things that Superfly had to deal with, or Priest had to deal with, excuse me. Because if he had to deal with any more interlocking mechanisms to get out of the life, I think I probably would have pulled my hair out. Because there was already a lot of stuff going on in the film where it's like, so you got to do this, 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 and this, and frame them, and make sure that they go down for this, and it's like, oh, Jesus. Is there enough is there enough subplots in this movie? What's funny, the thing I always hear is like, oh, there was only forty five pages of script for this film, and I'm just like, 
but there's a lot of shit that's going on in here. And people will say, oh, well, it's just, you know, a lot of driving around and a lot of, uh, you know, walking and driving and stuff. And it's like, yeah, there's a lot of walking and driving, but I think that there was more than 45 pages worth of script for this because there was a lot of stuff going on. I mean, the relationships with the cops, the stuff with, uh, you know, his girl. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say like, okay, five pages of the sex scene, but it, felt like there was more to it. And then he lovingly grabs her soapy ass for five pages. There was a lot of ass grabbing. A lot of ass grabbing, a lot of soapy asses. Uh, Soapy asses aside, the thing that kind of was echoing in my mind, Mike, and you'll appreciate this, is when we we did Jackie Chan movies on the Culture Cast in December. And the best ones were the ones that kept it simple and straightforward. And... This movie is like the antithesis. It's like some of those Jackie Chan movies where it's like throwing 8 million things at the screen and seeing what sticks. And that was a knock at this film for me is that it's like, it's, it's almost like you didn't need all of these things. You could have just simplified it and kept it a little kind of straighter and more laser focused and not had like eight different things going on that are all in the way of priests getting out of the life, which the, 2018 film keeps that same like scattergun approach with the plot and a a knock against it as well. But it's that like very not narratively cohesive in regards to like the subplots. And I, that's just, it's just a, it's just one of those things where it's like, really like, this is a pretty simple story. You don't have to complicate it. Well, there's interesting moments like when the black militants enter the film and it's just like, okay, is this going to turn into something? And he basically just tells them, you know, hey, fuck off. If you're going to do something for the neighborhood, you know, you go right ahead. I'll I'll chip in, whatever. But, you know, until you actually get out there and do something, fuck off. And it's just like, oh, okay. And then they leave and they're never heard from again. You know, I was expecting, like, the way that Goldie and his brother interact in the Mac or something. But, nope, there's none of that. Um, I mean, it it was a thing, you know, in 1972, it was a, it was a big deal, but they kind of introduce it, deal with it and leave it within a few minutes. But to your point, Chris, it's like, did you really need to introduce it? I guess it could have been left on the cutting room floor. Some of the stuff in the film feels so unnecessary. It seems to just like, what are we just doing this to just extend the, the time of the, like the runtime of the film? Because yeah, the film's only 93 minutes, but there's a lot of stuff in this film that feels really unnecessary and just kind of drags down the pace of the film. I was really trying to get uh, Philip Fenty on the show because I've been trying to track him down for a long time. He's the screenwriter of the film, and he wrote and directed one of my favorite films, The Baron, like I mentioned before. And he's done a lot of great work. I've been trying to get a hold of him. I actually think I found his street address, sent him a physical letter, all this kind of stuff. Never got him. And I really wanted to talk to him after last night when I was rereading an interview with uh, Sig Shore from Shock Cinema, where Shore was like, oh, I directed Superfly, and I wrote the script. Philip Fenty and, and Gordon Parks Jr. didn't do anything. And I'm just like, okay, is this like sour grapes and old man's recollection or how much truth is there to this kind of stuff? So I always hate that kind of one sided. This is what this guy is saying. And there's no one to counter that. 
But, you know, according to him, he wrote and did everything. And it's just like, okay, I could understand a first-time screenwriter and a first-time director having this kind of rough stuff. But, you know, come on, Sig, if, if you're really uh, that worldly and stuff, maybe you would have a tighter plot. So maybe you would have uh, a little bit of a tighter film. To which I have this image in my head now, as you were saying, as someone who who would have been more competent. And it's Pee-wee from Big Adventure, you know, flying off his bike and landing in front of the kids and going, I meant to do that. I think that would be, oh, well, of course, I knew exactly what I was doing. Like, I wanted it to look like that. I wanted it to, you know, be paced in such a manner, you know. So basically embracing all of all of the, the, the low rentness or mistakes or whatever it is of, of someone who may have been a more polished filmmaker and uh, just accepting that those were artistic choices that I made. This is all a very calculated commentary on the life and times of a drug dealer in New York. Okay, sure. Thanks. Which it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But yeah, you just fall backwards into it. Congratulations, dude. I wanted it to look scuzzy and dirty. Yeah, it was meant to be cinema verite. Okay. You go off and produce TN Superfly TNT. Go right ahead. I almost don't even want to talk about it. It's so bad. But I know we have to because it's not only produced by Sig Shore, but it's also the only other time Ron O'Neill is Superfly. Or priest, and it's also directed by Ron O'Neill, but probably Sig Shore because he'd probably just take credit for it anyways. Well, that Alex Haley guy, he didn't know how to write, so Sig Shore just wrote the screenplay for that one too. Yeah, okay. Uh... If I were Alex Haley, I would want someone else to have written the script for that film. I had all the ideas for Star Wars and everything. So back to Superfly. I actually like that whole idea of all these interlocking pieces and all the mechanisms and stuff that it takes for him to get out of the life because it reminds me almost like a, a heist film where you have to have all of those pieces and parts going in there. And it's a good heist film insofar as we're not getting the explanation of things. Those are the really bad heist films where they're like, okay, Sheila, I want you to go over here and then we're going to meet on the elevator and I'm going to give you the money. And then, you know, then the cops are going to come and they're going to get tipped off by Eddie. Cause I know he's going to betray me and blah, 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 blah. And instead they just show it. And then when he kind of pulls out the aces at the end is like, that's right. You know, I know exactly who you are, Mr. Police Commissioner, played by Sig Shore, by the way. I know exactly who you are, and I've got a contract out on you. So if anything happens to me, it's funny that it's almost like a, uh, a line right from The Godfather. You know, should lightning strike him or anything? You know, should he choke on a chicken bone? Then they're going to come after the commissioner. Or they're going to come after his wife, his son, who is possibly homosexual. I'm not really sure and murder all of them just because priest is hired. <laughs> He's hired real killers, white ones, baby. A very interesting distinction to make. So he's he now has a contract with the mob, so that kind of answered my question as far as was he in Dutch with the mob, but apparently not, and he's got the money for them now, so that if anything bad happens, they get their money and these guys die, but okay. And then Priest manages to ride off into the sunset, which is very unexpected, because you would expect that this character is going to come to a bad end though he actually manages to get away with it. And I don't think that, again, that's glorification of anything. I think it is somebody has a plan and they manage to pull through despite all of the odds. 
Well, and I think any other film where the drug dealer is not the main character, they probably would have not made it. But I think that this film obviously is trying to tell a little bit of a different story. So I have no problem with Priest making it out at the end. He kind of threw everybody else into the fire to do so, which I think is an interesting commentary about what it takes to get out is to essentially take gasoline, light it, you know, pour it on every bridge and light them on fire and say, oh, fuck it, I don't care. Because that's essentially what he did. Uh, I mean, like everybody that had anything to do with him except for his girlfriend is either dead or, you know, turned on him. So, I mean, it just shows you how entrenched everything is. It needs to go that far in order for it to make sense. It can't be an easy thing. It can't be like, well, all right, boss, I'm putting in my two weeks. See ya. You know, this isn't like <laughs> even any other job. And again, I like that our main antagonists of this entire film are the white police officers. I mean, it is... This movie would have been made – life would have been much easier for Priest had there been no white cops in, involved at all. He probably would have had a much easier time getting away with stuff. But once those cops come in and they are so corrupt and they want a piece of the action and they want to keep him in this position of powerlessness, that that's really what he has to overcome. One of the things that I realized – Watching Superfly is how much of Superfly got photocopied and reused in other films. So, honestly, I hadn't seen it in 15 years or so. So, I'd seen all these other movies. So, I'd seen Dolomite or I'd seen, you know, all these other films that came out in the same period. And it's amazing to me, like, things like the love scene that's in here is kind of a cliche. Um, the karate scene is a cliche. The cops sweating him down at the station is a cliche. Um, all of which, of course, uh, then become stacked on top of each other and lampooned in something like Black Dynamite. Well, yeah, it's funny because as I was watching the movie and they're having the sex in the tub, I was wondering if that was an influence on my favorite black exploitation film, uh, Black Shampoo, and that they end up having sex in the shower, which they end up doing again in uh, Superfly 2018. So I don't know if that's a thing, if <laughs> if it's like, okay, we're going to do this. I mean, there were, um, you know, scenes of like the the – the torture of Freddy and everything. Yeah, that felt very familiar. And that, again, felt like something that I would see in The Baron. Uh, actually, the same actor, I believe, gets tortured in that movie. So, yeah, I was seeing a lot of stuff that I would see in other films. And I'm wondering if that was just purely Superfly or if that was kind of this era of... Because at the end of the day, Superfly, like I was saying, it feels like a heist movie or a police procedural. So there's like that kind of early 70s um, stuff in the air. You know, felt a little French connection as well. I mean, I don't think that Superfly necessarily took from The Godfather, even though it came out in the same year. But it's like there are things that were in The Godfather that I see kind of mirrored in Superfly, and I don't think that that was necessarily uh, a direct lift, but it might have been just something in the air in the early 70s that then, yeah, kind of propagates through the rest of the decade. Well, and I noticed it too. You know, we, t we talked about the sex scene a little bit and you know, the grabbing of the butt and the soapy butt and like all that, like, but it wasn't like you couldn't see it in a way that like felt pornographic. And like you guys have been saying, like, it's so interesting that it, it seemingly 
had this effect down the road that maybe it kind of pushed open the door a little bit to kind of test the boundaries of what could and couldn't be in these films to the point of where it's like, will they be able to show this or is it just pornographic? Well, it is really refreshing that this was, you know, fairly mainstreamish. Well, not mainstream in so far as like, you know, mom and dad are going to go down to the multiplex and see this, but it was, you know, it, it it eventually made a shit ton of money. So in that way, I'm talking mainstream. But this is also really, to me, positive portrayal of two African-American adults having sex on screen. And this is right around the era of, you know, Black is Beautiful. And this is doing everything that it can to really bring that home. We're going to take a break and play a few words from our sponsors. And I did want to mention that as we're recording this, I'm wearing a very hip Superfly t-shirt, courtesy of tpublic.com. And you can go over there and get 30% off of any t-shirt for the rest of the month. Well, the rest of the month isn't that long with Projection Feb 30. You can get 30% off there. And when they give me a new promo code for... March or April or whatever, I will post those as well. So keeping a good collection of uh, t-shirts that I both wear and want to wear over at tpublic.com. So let's go ahead and play those words and we'll be right back. I don't know how he does it. I mean, the guy does books, he writes reviews, he's on the show every week with me. I'm talking about my humble podcast partner, Mike White from the Projection Booth. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary. I just wanted to let you know, Cinema Detours, Mike's new book is out. It collects a bunch of reviews that he's done over the past decade or so for various places here and there. And you basically want to pick it up, and I'll tell you why. Because some of those older reviews, the movies that you have seen, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend. And then the movies that you haven't seen yet, well, Mike will add about another 100 to 150 movies that you're going to have to see before you die. You can give him a wedgie or something next time you see him and thank him for that one. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it over at our website, projection-booth.com. You can get it at amazon.com, and you can get it in either paper form, if you're old school, or you can get it for your Kindle, your e-reader. So there's no reason to detour Cinema Detours. From Mike White, and of course, you can always learn more about what we do, about the books, and everything else at projection-booth.com. I'm Dave Hunt, and I'm one of the co-hosts for Super True Stories, a podcast where two guys suffer through and report back on some of the worst documentaries you can stream for free. I'm Axel Kohagen, the other co-host. Film is a beautiful lie that teaches us about who we are on the inside. Dave and I look at the documentaries that are the ugliest of truths, teaching you about mixed martial arts and fishing, poorly faked ghost stories, and everything you wanted to know about poor production values and stock footage. Check us out on iTunes, Google Play, or at supertruestories.com. Hello, I'm Mugumbo, and I am a potaholic. I have been known to consume four or five of these underground commentaries a day, salivating for the next episodes. I have tweeted the creators of these shows and offered sexual favors for validation and conversation. I put these hosts high on a pedestal, but for some reason, I can never climax until I listen to the Traumatic Cinematic Show. What is the difference, you ask? The Traumatic Cinematic Show has my own self-defecating voice on it. Nothing gets me off faster than thinking about myself. So when you are sitting around nude, 
pleasuring yourself to the voices of strangers, check out traumaticcinematic.com because we'll give you a reach around. You can also find us on traumaticcinematic.podomatic.com. I'm on the internet. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, the projection booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. He drives the most expensive car because second best never enters his mind. He'll bet $100,000 on the turn of a card because he don't believe in losing. And he's about to take on a small army with TNT. He means taint nothing to it. There's only one stud who could rip off New York, ruin Rome, and stay alive to run a number in Africa. That superfly dude is back. Black and beautiful he's twice as cool twice as sly twice as deadly in superfly tnt ron o'neill is superfly tnt a six-shore production from paramount pictures rated r under 17 not admitted without a parent all right we're back and we're talking about superfly so if you notice Ron O'Neill's wearing a whole lot of Italian headgear. A lot of those hats in Superfly are done by an Italian designer. And I think he wanted to go right to the source and go to Italy and have his African adventure, but start off in Italy with Superfly TNT. Oh, Jesus Christ. I don't want to supersede anyone else, but this movie is absolutely god fucking awful <laughs> it is it is bad in a way i was unprepared to to watch it is astounding in its mediocrity to a point where i was like what okay where's the tnt even i had a real hard time with this movie i don't know what it was about black exploitation sequels where they would take our main black exploitation character and suddenly transport them into an exotic location because they did that with Hot Potato, they did it with Shaft, they did it with Cleopatra Jones, and they do it here with Priest and send him over to Italy and over to uh, Africa. And yeah, it's very, very similar to Shaft in Africa. Okay, I'm, I'm gonna tee up now. Alright, so <laughs> uh, it's it's very sad to me that watching the credits, like, I had, I didn't bother to see this one before. Um, so I was coming in completely cold and I see screenplay Alex Haley to which I go fantastic because Alex Haley, for those who are uninitiated, wrote Roots, the book. He was the, the ghostwriter of, um, not loosely. I mean, he's listed on the front of the cover of autobiography of Malcolm X. Um, did one of the most fascinating uh, interviews for Playboy magazine. I tell people it's an absolute must read where in 1965, he went and interviewed George Lincoln Rockwell, the head of the American Nazi party. Um, so this is a guy who is steeped in, you know, race relations, uh, you know, black history, all of this stuff. I mean, just amazing. And, um, I'm actually kind of amazed by watching this that Roots 
the TV series didn't happen because somebody would have gone back and go, you did Superfly TNT. No, we're not, we're not giving you a multi-part series based on your book. Sorry, pal. Uh, because it is really that bad. One of the, one of the big keys for me when I turned this thing on was like, we talked about that overhead shot in the first film and you really get a sense of, of everything. Um, this God, the, 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 the credit, sequence is awful the pre-credit sequence is awful uh and it and it and it falls into when we did the fred williamson um westerns it falls into the well we paid for it we're going to use it so i can't tell you how many times i heard i think it's the the opening credits music or something just over and over and over again and then the the other big problems i have in here is that for as serious as the first film was and they wanted us to respect Priest, even if even if we thought he was doing, you know, was kind of the anti-hero in, in some ways. We still want to respect him. Uh, in this film, there's things in here that I don't believe his character ever would do. Like, for example, there's like a dinner party scene. And then there's the horse riding scene where he falls off a horse. Really? Really? Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, this is a guy who's supposed to be the epitome of cool, hip, you know, and all this. And they're basically using him for slapstick comedy and then sort of like comedy of manners or, oh, I've got to go out to dinner with my with my lady and her friends uh, kind of thing. I'm just it, – it's just bad. It's just horrible setups. With something like Shaft in Africa, Shaft is very much like – not an action character, but very much more hands-on. With Superfly TNT, Priest, like in the original – Superfly, he's not like running and gunning people. He's like outsmarting them. And like there's a couple action scenes, but it's not like him sitting on the back of a Humvee with a 50 caliber machine gun mowing down white police officers in New York. In this film, it's like they're trying to make him, like you said, Rob, into something that he's not, be it a comedic character or like an actual like badass action character and it fails so completely that i have a hard time like you said rob believing that this is the same character like this doesn't strike me as a superfly from the last film i mean i know that it's ron o'neill playing him but as far as i'm concerned this ain't the same character and, and that's the problem is – and that's why it becomes kind of unforgivable for me too is that once you talk about Alex Haley, yes. But then on top of it, not only is Ron O'Neill back as that character, but he directs it. So you think he would have had some control over you know, what this character is going to do. If the character is going to grow, they're going to do something else. I had no um, – I, I have nothing in the first film that would even equate to the fact – that these things would even be possible in the second film. Like, when the first film ends, I go, yeah, he's going to go to Europe and, and take up horseback riding. No. Like, th th there's none of that in there. There's there's not a hint that even his character would even be willing to put himself in sort of slapsticky situations because he goes out of his way to control the situation and to be sort of the, the main man in the room everywhere he's at. But for some reason, he ends up, you know, at, at several points in this film, looking like a goof. At one point in this film, he he is captured and beaten half to death in a African prison. And again, I don't believe for a second, like you said, that this is something that the character would ever let happen to himself. Because he doesn't even let that happen in the original film. So why would he let it happen now? 
Right. I can't comprehend how bad this movie is with everything that went into it and everyone involved. And like we've been talking about Ron O'Neill directing it and Alex Haley writing it. It's like, what the fuck happened? Uh, there was a lot of cocaine around at the time. Uh, and it wasn't- <laughs> they were living the they were living the life. They were uh, art mimics life, and life mimics art. Apparently, yeah. I, I I mean that's the only thing that I always used to joke about. Like you know, I guess there was a lot of drugs in Hollywood in that period. Or something. Like Robert I mean- Guillaume is in this film for fuck's sake, and he does nothing. God, there's that scene where he sings, and I was like, what fucking movie am I watching? This is not yeah. this it's so tonally mismatched with the original film that it almost feels like a parody of the original film in a way. I mean, it would have been better if if they would have made it an, an outright farce. Right. You know. Oh, I agree like completely. A, like like a Mel Brooks style <laughs> placing settles type farce. But it's but it's not. It's trying to be serious and that's why it doesn't work. <laughs> And then there's that weird scene. Oh my god, I don't even know if we want to skip to the end. But like the weird scene at the end where he's like walking out in the middle of like the bush and they're playing like bizarre Middle Eastern music in the background. And it's just, I don't know what they're, I don't know what they're trying to say in that scene. But if there is any emotional significance to it, it's completely lost in the fact that not but 30 seconds later, the film just ends on a wet fart. Just that's it. (laughs) <laughs> what the hell? Like that that's it? That's all? He was given up by the seemingly corrupt African guy who does things in a country? See, and and that's the thing too. It's like it doesn't really um it it doesn't really show Africa in that great of a light either, because this would have been like post colonial Africa in certain parts. So this is the period in the sixties and the seventies when you know, the, the Brits leave and the French and the Belgians and, you know, they're sorting out who's going to actually run their own country again. And, you know, this is also a time of within history of like Pan-Africanism, you know, where people in America are looking to Africa and going, well, we're all our brothers and we're all going to work together to improve the quality of life for black people, whether they're in Africa or they're in America. And, it doesn't really do anything to help that cause. It, it kind of makes it worse. But you don't understand. Priest speaks for the people. The white guy speaks for the government. Like, how heavy-handed was that back and forth between those two characters? Like, it, it felt too on the nose for its own good. It's like, yeah, we get it. That was the whole point of Dr. Sanko essentially hiring you to give guns to the people because it's you're representing the God. It's just, it's such a weird movie to follow the last one. It's just so bizarre. Thanks Mike for making me watch it because I'm thank you. <laughs> and, and, oh God, we're not even, we're not even halfway to how bad we're about to get. So, so let's talk about that. So Superfly TNT comes out in 1973, just a year after Superfly, the original. And, Somewhere between 1973 and 1990, Superfly lost his space. There's no space between Super and Fly anymore. In right, <laughs> yeah. What <laughs> happened? I was going to ask if anyone else oh, noticed yeah. that. 
<laughs> we couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford the space. They had to do some major kerning on the poster, and they said, just take that space right out of there. We need it. We need it to fit on the back of this guy's funky, fresh, high top fade on the poster. I'll say when it's shaved into the back, a kid and plays head. And so, 1990, we have the return of Superfly, kinda, because Ron O'Neill is not back for this movie. It is Nathan Purdy as Priest, and my God, this movie! It reminds. It, it seems like one of those kind of movies where it's a parody again of itself because the bloodshed, the violence, the dialogue, everything is amped up so much that it's absolutely absolutely ridiculous. This is kind of like uh like samurai cop levels of action and violence. And and I try not to judge a movie by its opening credits, but even before the opening credits there's like an animation for the distribut for the distributor of this thing <laughs> and I go, "Oh god." I'm just like, that is not a very good animation. I'm like, okay, hopefully this gets better. But it feels like it was shot on a low to no budget. I don't really get the sense that he's living the life or trying to live the life, really. The music is odd. We can we can get into that a bit. But there's just – I mean, it, it feels like it was cut with a meat cleaver. Like, <laughs> these guys didn't know what they were doing in the editing room either. I mean, the best part of it is Samuel L. Jackson. Who's on one of the posters for the film, but is in the movie for all of 10 minutes. Yeah. I mean, he's probably the best actor in here. And is he making crack cocaine? Is that what I'm seeing? He sure is. He's making right. crack in his kitchen in a in a Mr. Coffee. In a bun coffee maker. Which isn't too far from his own life. I mean, I think at this point he had gotten himself cleaned up, but or just about. I mean, but he had, he had, a, he had a time there for a while with his own addiction issues. Rob, you were talking about... Uh, you know, the, the opening animation for the distributor. I looked at the poster for this film and I was like, what are we getting ourselves into? It is yeah. so bizarre for what, for what, like what the expectation is for a third Superfly film. I mean, so we have Superfly TNT, which was a complete and utter mess so much so that Mike actually didn't even say anything in our discussion. He just sat there and let you and I tear it apart. I'd like to point out for anyone listening, Mike, <laughs> you Cheshire cat grinning podcast host you are. But the return of Superfly, when you look at the poster for it, it looks like a James Bond movie, right? Like he's in like a suit tie, not like a jacket, but like a bow tie. But then you have kid and play with Superfly shaved in the back of their head and it's just it doesn't know what it wants to be, but I'll tell you what it isn't. It is not Superfly. Ron O'Neill. Oh my god! Like Ron O'Neill directing the last one is one thing, but I'm glad that he wasn't in this film. I know he was getting up there in age when they were doing this film, uh, but he dodged the proverbial bullet completely because this movie is abs. If Superfly TNT was bad, this is bottom of the barrel like you've gone underneath the barrel where the barrel is sitting and you are on ground now i can figure out the 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 thought process that went through to make this film like you can kind of see it especially if you were hip to what was going on at in this period so obviously when the first film came out there was no hip-hop yet i mean it was you know house parties or whatever. I mean, the, the, the folks, but they, they were just starting to develop what the sound was. By the time you get to 1990, by the time you get to the, the mid eighties, 
they're referencing back to all this stuff. Dolomite, Superfly, all of this stuff. So I bet, you know, old Six thinking to himself, man, these rappers, they keep bringing up that movie I made. You know, they're really influenced by that. The movie I not only made, I directed, and I wrote the script for all the movies, right? That movie, my movie. So he thinks to himself, what could I do to make something that the kids would like today? Who's hip to that hip hop music? Well, we're going to need a guy with a high top fade and then shaved into the back of his head. Yes, because that's what they do. Um, maybe I can get Curtis Mayfield, but Curtis isn't going to do all the songs. He's only going to do like two. I'm going to have this horrible, you know, keyboard music that feels completely disembodied from the rest of the soundtrack and it's horribly mixed into the soundtrack, but regardless, who cares? And then there'll be some hip hop tracks in there. Uh, some rap music, we'll put some rap music in there. And, um, and, and then we'll get some of the things that are going on today. So back then we were talking about cocaine, but crack's the thing. So we're going to put crack in there. And it's like, he's just trying to staple in all of these things. But the problem is, is it doesn't have a tenth of the style or grit of the first film. It looks like it was shot in some guy's condo in Florida or something. I mean, it just, it doesn't look very good. Um, when he walks into that one apartment, I'm like, there's nothing on the walls. It's, I mean, you could have shot this in, you know, anywhere. It's not very interesting. Right. He called up a real estate agent and was just like, hey, I need this apartment for the afternoon. I'd like to point out that this film has something that none of the other Superfly films have, and that puts it above them. This film has Tone Loke's music in it. And everybody knows that this is the 80s and Tone Loke is down with the ladies. So if you're not a fan of Chiba Chiba, you need to get out of here because it's better than any Curtis Mayfield song in any of the other movies. Okay. And there's like a Jamaican cab driver and he's token up and he's like, you want to hit this man? And it's like, nah, I'm good. And Tone Loke's Chiba Chiba's playing in the background. I mean, take the hammer and smash yourself on the nose with it because that's essentially what this movie is. It is on the nose at every chance that it gets. Well, one of the things I wrote here is I go, doesn't look like he lives this at all. Not cool. I go, the guy looks like an insurance salesman. You know, I mean, I just, <laughs> you know, I mean, no, it's not the same and, Superfly. It's just, it's not, God, I keep calling him Superfly for fuck's sake. I guess technically in this film, he could be called Superfly since Superfly is one word. So maybe this yeah. isn't a sequel. Maybe this is just something else. The music in here was offensive to me. And I mean offensive in like, not like, oh my God, the content. I mean, it's just like, it's not, I'm, I'm talking about the score music. Just the keyboards mix really high. It repeats itself. It's got all these, uh, it just doesn't work. It repeats and then, itself so much that you be, if you start to notice it, not like subconsciously notice it, but actually like notice it every time they play it, then it's too much. Way yeah. too much. There's a scene where they blow up this, um, the storefront. Now, uh, I wrote down, we see that from like eight different angles. Now, the question is, is he trying to say that they blew up like eight different buildings or was it just one building? And it's like, well, I paid for all these cameras. I'm going to reset it and show you how it blew up from this angle and then blew up from that angle and blew up from this angle over here. I thought it was eight different buildings. They were just super cheap. I, I didn't get that it was eight different buildings. I got it that it was one building shown from eight different angles. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the the problem here is 
asking the question alone is a problem. <laughs> it is a problem, isn't it? I mean, asking this question in and of itself means that the film is failing to do anything right. If we can't even tell if it's the same building blowing up or eight different buildings. And I guess the main concept in here is he comes back from Europe and he's now being pressured by the government to turn people over so that he can get something. I wasn't 100% sure as to what the actual even storyline is. Was he was he trying to go home? Yeah, he's trying to go home. And I think it's because Eddie, his partner from the first movie that dropped a dime on him, is the guy that gets murdered at the beginning of the film. And so then that sets it up like a, a murder mystery. But yeah, him coming home, to me, reminded me of somebody who's been in jail coming home. But no, for him, I guess he was still living in Italy or Paris by this time. And then he's coming home. But I was also reminded of uh, I'm going to get you, sucker, and and Jack coming home from uh, the the army or whatever to to, to investigate uh, Junebug's death, and I'm just like, okay, this this feels like in I'm going to get you, sucker was 1988, so I don't know how it was necessarily parodying the Return of Superfly, but it really felt like that. I mean, Superfly, Return of Superfly felt like uh, I'm going to get you, sucker, without the jokes. What it also makes me question is why was he coming home for the funeral of the guy who almost made it so he couldn't get away? What logic is that? I mean, there's no need. There's no reason. You could have just made it any random person that you could shoehorn in a connection to him. You didn't have to be like, yeah, the guy from the first Superfly, the one with the space in it. You remember that movie? So – that character from that movie is the one who dies at the beginning of this movie without the space in it. Or maybe it's just another dude named Eddie, but I'm like, okay, if there's an Eddie in the first movie and an Eddie in the third movie, I have to assume that they're the same Eddie, but uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. Well, that was why I assumed. I assumed it was the same person, but I guess technically we don't have to assume that. No, it doesn't matter at doesn't all. Matter. Is Eddie okay? I don't know. <laughs> I like that, right. Ultimately, at the end of the day, this movie is somehow worse than Superfly TNT. No, this is way better than Superfly TNT. Like, Superfly TNT is offensive to me. Like, it is, like, the character is so out of proportion to what it was that it, I, I can't handle it. Like, this, it's not very good, but it's not as offensive. I don't know. Maybe it's because Ron O'Neill isn't in it. <laughs> No, I'm like, <laughs> I think that must be what it is. I think you're giving this a little bit more of a pass because it's not actually Superfly. It's another person playing him. Why did this God Sig Shore is a clown. I'm then that's my opinion. That's not the projection booth's opinion. That's my opinion. He is a clown. This is a clown ass <laughs> movie. This movie is just ripe for rediscovery to be made fun of. I mean, it just feels so over the top, so balls out, but for no good reason. I mean, like the the seven explosions of the building front. I mean, that's what this movie is. There's just so much excess for no good reason and all in the wrong proportion and all of it looking absolutely goddamn cheap. I mean, it, it, this makes Kung Fury look like it is this epic, you know, four hour movie. It was so hard to sit through this thing because it was so fucking boring. That's the other thing about this movie that I mean, I guess would put it a little bit above. Well, no, probably put it below. Eh, it's again, 
Superfly TNT, I think, is just as bad, but I think this is a little bit worse because I think this movie is more boring. Less happens in this movie. And it's so less believable because, like you guys said, he looks like a he looks like a fucking school teacher. Like, oh, well, yes, Mr. Priest, uh, yeah, I have an answer to the question. It's like, this guy looks like a dork. A total dork. And I think it might be because of his hair. Because, like, you know, Priest has that, like, cool haircut. Even in the new movie. They were like, eh, hey, I gotta give him this cool, you know, Morris Day in the Time. They even reference it in um, the new one. And they give him, like, the cool perm. And then, like, this movie, I guess it's not a perm, but they give him, like, just a dorky dad haircut. I, I guess the only reason why I'm putting my thumb on the scale just a little bit for this one is Sam Jackson. So just watch the Sam Jackson parts and don't watch the rest of it. That's all you gotta do. The Sam Jackson parts in this movie are tantamount to the Sam Jackson parts in Goodfellas. No, he's got a little bit more to do in here. Plus, he's got one line that I really like. My crack's the best crack? There you go. (laughs) Right? I make the best crack in town. I got the best crack in town. Oh, man. You know, Sam Jackson offsets like, man, I've said that too much, not behind the camera. Which, this is what? A year before Jungle Fever? Where he, you know, I guess he goes from making it to being on it in quick succession, so... Crack is almost like glanced over in this. And then, yeah, you get to like Jungle Fever or you get to uh, like New Jack City's the next year. I mean, New Jack City is legit, as least, at least as far as I still remember, that movie is legit. And it is so much better than something like this. And it just addresses a lot of the same problems, but does it in so much better way. This is the era right around where the, the rappers start acting. They didn't, I guess they didn't find one for this one, but like I said, New Jack City, I mean, Ice-T, bringing it. Well, and they did have Ice-T here on uh, the soundtrack. Oh, man, and that was just embarrassing. It's like Curtis Mayfield singing, and then, <laughs> and then Ice-T just going, 1990. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, the star standout of this soundtrack is Tomo. Yeah, well, Chiba Chiba is probably the best song that he ever recorded. And his discography is long and very expansive, isn't it? It oh is some God. very delicious vinyl. Yeah, God, is good Lord. I feel like for me in this film, when I think about it, which will be in as, about as infrequently as humanly possible, having watched four Superfly films twice each now, because I watched them when Mike asked me to be on this, and then more recently so I could refresh myself, the thing I take away from this movie is, like you kind of laid out in your Sigshore pitch meeting, Rob, is it feels very much like a film made to capitalize on an idea that the person who was capitalizing on it did not thoroughly understand why it was interesting and important to begin with. So why in 2018 did we need a remake of Superfly? That's an interesting question to me because it's like we are in a weird place for African-American film. We have the Medea films, the whole Tyler Perry empire, but then we get like one-offs from other directors. And here we have this guy, and I fucking hate to say it, Director X. <laughs> I knew you were going to hate it, too. Who <laughs> has done a shit ton of music videos, which you know we've talked a lot about people who've done music videos and transitioned into films. Some of them do a great job, others not not so much. This movie, it's got a great look to it. Um, I just, the characters and everything just weren't that engaging to me. I just wasn't really 
buying this film that much. And there are some interesting parts to it. I mean, the beginning when uh, Priest, again, you know, the, this new Priest, he doesn't necessarily use violence. He uses words more than his fists and that he you know, is humiliating these guys at a club by telling them all of their secrets. Basically, it's almost like he's got these supernatural powers, but he seems to know everything about everybody. So it's great. He's able to do that. He's able to dodge bullets uh, when one guy pulls a gun on him and then some, some poor <laughs> bitch gets shot. <laughs> Oh, Holy shit, I'm glad you mentioned God, it, that, not me. That made me laugh when she got shot. <laughs> well, that didn't, sir, that's not funny. It made me laugh. <laughs> it was um, pretty funny. <laughs> the funny part was the lead up to it where he dodges a bullet like Neo in the fucking Matrix. And I shit you not, that is how that scene is framed. Yeah, that was absolutely bizarre. But this movie felt like other movies now, you know, it's 2018. So I'm like watching this going, okay, that reminds me a little bit of John wick. That reminds me a little bit of this. Like when they were trying to use Curtis Mayfield to do basically like a Martin Scorsese montage, it ends up looking like the hangover too, you know? And I'm just like, okay, this doesn't work anymore. You can't use this music in this way anymore because we've seen it in too many movies. So I've seen, this same thing, but done in other films. It's weird that they're revisiting some of the original stuff, kind of giving it a new spin, but I don't know. Ultimately, it wasn't that successful for me. In fact, in my notes, all it says is, this movie is boring as fuck. It is basically wed to the modern hip-hop music video. It feels like it. You can tell the director basically said, oh, I'm just making a long-form music video. That's great. The main problem that I have with it is that there is no feeling of being stuck, which was the main sort of philosophical point of the first film, that this is all I can do. This is the way the world has trapped me. I'm basically led to believe that this is all that I can do. This is, I'm, I'm here. I've got to find my way out. And in this one, it seems more like if, if we talked about showing the high times so you can show the low times, there doesn't seem to be enough, enough low times in here. Uh, and especially if you're going to build them that high where you're going into the club and it's like basically the restaging of Caligula, you're going to have to really get dirty in order to make it seem like, damn, this is a really awful life. And it doesn't. Like, if, if someone was gonna say this, this, um. Glorifying the drug dealer lifestyle. Exactly. This one really does. I think oh, this 100%. one. I think this one fails in its, in its moral idea that the, it, this one seems more like, okay, boss, I'm putting in my two weeks and I'm leaving the job. Uh, it, it, there doesn't seem to be as much personal, uh, risk in that way. At, at least I'm not feeling it as much. Um, I mean, there is a personal risk, but there, there's also the societal conversation that wasn't in, in the first film that was huge to me that I thought was, was, uh, important. I mean, it's well produced. It's, it looks good. They, they, they shot it well. Um, costuming, all of that. Uh, I think it's interesting that, they have sort of a Black Lives Matter wish fulfillment in here where he beats the hell out of the cop. I like the fact that the main cop that's got him under is a is a white woman. 
cop. So there's a lot of things to like. They just didn't do it well, to my eye. Um, and I, I think it negates sort of the moral purpose of the first film. I would agree with you on a lot of it. I mean, again, I didn't dislike this movie as much as Mike did, clearly. But the thing that I I know that this movie had the biggest problem with is, why is he leaving again? It had a hard time convincing me he's leaving and making yeah. a reason why. Like, why the fuck are you leaving this life, man? Like, what? Right. what? You could dodge bullets like Neo in the Matrix. You're never going to get shot anyways. Like, the dude had the gun a foot from your face, and you didn't get shot in the head. So as far as I'm concerned, you're not, like, in any real duress here. So why are you leaving this lifestyle where you can have two women that blow you in the shower? You've got this house, penthouse. You've got, like, clearly a very secure lifestyle, and yet you're leaving because – one guy pointed a gun in your face in the street and shot a woman behind you because you dodged the bullet. That's it? Yeah, that seems like a really weird thing that they have going on as far as like, oh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, now he's really mad that he, you know, the reason for him wanting to shoot Priest in the first place was so tenuous. And then suddenly it kind of creates this conflict and you're just like, it really doesn't have to be that big of a deal. And then it's like, oh, yeah, well, uh, Eddie sent him to do this and do that. And it's just like, okay, this, this is complicated for no reason. Well, I can understand one point of it setting up. I, I think he even says it at one point that we can lose our lives over nothing. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, there's, there's no real reason for that guy to kill me or to shoot me. So I can get that. Like, I think, uh, as a moral, as a concept, that's great. I, I think that that's definitely something that, that I've heard people who I know who've grown up in, you know, neighborhoods that had to deal with, with similar, as they would call them, kind of predators in their midst. Um, just a feeling that, oh, well, you, you know, you stepped on my sneakers or you looked at me the wrong way or, you know, just something stupid that could just be handled with, you know, a couple of insults and, you know, maybe everybody moves on, uh, ends up in a body bag. But, um, I, I also don't get the feeling that, like I said, it just didn't feel like there was enough for him to want to leave at the same time. It, it just seemed weak in that aspect. They touch on it, but ever so slightly that it almost would have felt better if they hadn't touched on it at all. Like, just don't even bring it up. Like, don't bring it up. Don't bring up the whole, you know, anything could lead to me dying. Just don't bring it up because it, the film doesn't take enough of a stance on it to really justify having it in the film. And the film doesn't address any of it really anyways that don't try to have like a message in your film. That has a guy getting his dick sucked by two women in the shower. You know, that is nice that they kept it as being like a liquid love scene, you know? <laughs> liquid love. Well, sorry, that's the name of the track that they play in... Uh, Black, Mike White and Liquid Love. In Black Shampoo, when Jonathan and Brenda are having sex in the shower, they call it Liquid Love. Like, I agree with Mike. It is boring. It's slow. Well, it doesn't help that it's almost two hours long. Yeah. Yeah, It's it needs to be cut back. The The other thing that I had in here is that it just feels like even in the end, you know, they're on this, cr I'm going to spoil it. We're on this cruise ship. Ain't nobody watching it anyways, Rob. So the original film, he tells off the cops and drives off into the sunset. Great. And here tells off the cops. Next thing we see, I guess he's on the Adriatic on a cruise ship. And 
<laughs> and he's like, he's just hanging out with his lady, and it's like, hey, we could always go back to the life. So it's like, well, what did I just spend two hours with you for? And I'm like, oh, you're setting up a sequel. That's all you're doing. It's 2018. They have to set up a sequel. And it was just, I was like, no, no, that doesn't work. Hey, but you know what? To the film's credit, the other film had two sequels. Are we going to see Superfly TNT again? I mean, that's the real question we all need to be asking ourselves. Is is this version of Priest going to take an African adventure? I hope not. I hope not. I'll tell if you what, If he's though. in the Adriatic, he might just, you know, go south and go in through Egypt or something. Uh, I'll tell you what, though. Trevor Jackson as Priest wasn't bad. No, he wasn't bad, but <laughs> there was a lot of it around it that I go, man, there's a lot of filigree on this. It, to me, felt like maybe like a th- a three by three inch painting square with maybe like a 30 foot by 30 foot tall frame. Like the frame is all really ornate and gold and has vines and all of this intricate stuff. And then the paintings only that big. Well, and you mentioned Rob uh, actors, you know, rappers acting in the nineties. I mean, this movie has like two or three rappers, uh, big boy from outcast, uh, Rick Ross is in it as just like a random character. It's like, what the fuck are you guys doing? And technically, Trevor Jackson is also a singer. So, again, it's just a weird – it's a weird movie. I don't think it's terrible. It's not great. But it's no original Superfly. It's not even a very close facsimile. It's kind of its own thing. And it wastes Michael Kenneth Williams' time. God damn it. Stop wasting this man's time. <laughs> <laughs> because he's he's such a good actor, and like he's in these fucking just awful movies. He's in these really bad movies, and like the, I mean, come on, The Wire guy's amazing in The Wire, and he's been in stuff like Jurassic World and Ghostbusters 2016 and Assassin's Creed, and then this movie. Guy's a great actor. So he was in Paycheck, 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 and Paycheck is what he was in. Yeah, it's true. It's true. He, it was just paycheck. Paycheck the life. All right, guys. We're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Brian De Palma, the modern master of suspense, invites you to witness a seduction. A mystery. A murder. Body double. You can't believe everything you see. Rated R. Check newspapers for theaters. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Brian De Palma's Body Double. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Rob and Chris. Rob, what is the latest with you, my brother? Well, I am uh, planning to go visit all of the locations from Superfly TNT and um, <laughs> and, like uh, and, oh, wow. and restage the entire film uh, just as myself. I'm going to play every character and uh, shoot it all on my cell phone. No, I'm, I have been working on odds and ends. Hopefully, I'll be able to tell you more. But uh, there could be an update, some news on the film threat doc that I talked about maybe, I don't know, two years ago when I was on here and the film threat book. So there might be something on that soon in the next few months. Can't say exactly sure uh, 100% yet, but there might be that. Uh, there's another book project I'm working on. And then, as you know, my Detroit Punk History Archive is up and running. I am f- 
putting together right now all of the tracks for the compilation record, which will come out later this year. So probably more towards the fall. So I'm tracking down tapes. I'm bothering people and uh, some of them I'll be pulling from uh, old seven inch records. So it'll be good. And I'm looking forward to putting that together. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And Chris, what's the latest with you? The culture cast is still going. I'm sure I'll be it to some people's sadness. Uh, my opinion on movies is still out there. Mike, you actually programmed what we're talking about in March over the culture cast, which is Ozploitation films. And no, it's not Wizard of Oz films. It's Australian exploitation films. I haven't seen any of them, which is normally the case anytime Mike does Mike White March, which is the second year now in a row. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm excited. I'm sure you're going to be there, Mike to guide me up the mountain of Ozploitation films. So I am very much looking forward to watching those films and getting to talk to you throughout the month about that. You can find that over at culturecast.com. Well, thank you guys so much for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
this record to bring you a special bulletin. Superfly is missing. We now take you to our on-the-spot reporter. I have several witnesses here with me. Sir, when was the last time you saw Superfly? It was the 3rd of September. And you, sir, can you describe the suit Superfly was wearing? Red, yellow, black, white, and brown. And you, sir, who was the last person Superfly was seen with? Mrs. Mrs. Jones! Mrs. Jones! Mrs. Jones! Mrs. Jones! If we need you for any further information, can we call you? Whenever you call me, I'll be there. We take you now to Washington. We're here at the White House. The president has an important announcement regarding Superfly. Mr. President, Mr. President, what seems to be the problem? I got ants in my pants and I need to dance. Just arriving at the White House is the man that will risk his neck for brother man. Chair, now that the president has called you into the case, what will you be doing? Chasing women and drinking. Mr. President, what is your opinion of Shaft? This cat Shaft is a bad... I see the president and Shaft have gone into the White House. What they do? Mr. President, Mr. President, what are you and Shaft doing in there? Holding hands, making all kinds of plans. Mr. President, why are you holding hands with Shaft? I've just been handed a bulletin. Superfly was last seen. We take you back to our on-the-spot reporter. I'm here with Freddy, who we believe knows the whereabouts of Superfly. Excuse me, Freddy. Ah! Wait a minute, what happened? Freddy's dead! That's what I said. Oh, well, I have several other witnesses. Do you know where Superfly is? We know, they know, and you know what I know. I don't know. How do you know? You better and just who is my best friend? Was his own, but the man lived alone. 
wants to move a lot of flow. Ask him his dream, what does it mean? He wouldn't know. Can't be like the rest, it's the most he'll confess. But the time's running out and there's no happiness. Ooh, super fly. If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.